to take our Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're actually just going to go back to the end of Acts chapter 6. Let's see, start this morning. We'll start reading from verse 9 of Acts chapter 6. It says, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and, and caught him and brought him to the council. And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, Ah, these things. Sorry, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the great opportunity and privilege it is to come together in this place and to spend time around your word and in worship of you. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we come around the book of Acts once again, I pray that you'd empower me through the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you'd give me uh, wisdom and guidance as I speak. And this morning, it would be your words and your thoughts. And that, Lord, you would take your word this morning. You would uh, teach us and instruct us through it. And Lord, I pray that we leave this place just singing your praises, Lord, and knowing that we've been in your presence, Lord. We pray that you bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember, we were in Acts chapter 6 last time I preached. It was quite a while ago. We've been on holidays and had family camp last week. We were in Acts chapter 6 and we uh, looked at the passage we just read. And we saw that Stephen ended up standing before the Sanhedrin because of his teachings concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember, he'd been going around teaching in the synagogues and, and the, the men of the synagogue didn't like what he was teaching. He stirred them up. Okay? They, they got um, stirred up in opposition against him. And those that stood up in opposition, you know, they first stood up and debated with Stephen. They questioned him, but they were unable to silence him in debate. We just read that in verse 10. It didn't matter what they said, Stephen had an answer. Okay, the Spirit was giving him wisdom. And so Stephen showed wisdom and understanding that confounded them. And so knowing that they couldn't defeat him in an open debate, we see that they then resort to seeking to destroy him. And so they hire men to bring a false witness against Stephen. Now these men accuse Stephen of blaspheming against God, against Moses, against the law, against the temple. They're all accusations which get everyone stirred up against Stephen. Get everyone against him, opposed to him. And so, you know, Stephen, of course, had never done this. Stephen would never have done this, as we said. He would never have blasphemed God, Moses, the law, or the temple. What they had done is they'd taken Stephen's words and twisted them around into a false accusation. And as Stephen stands before the, the Sanhedrin at the end of chapter 6 and he's listening to these accusations, we find that he stands in silence as they ask these things, as they accuse him before the Sanhedrin. He stands in silence, but as they look at him, verse 15 tells us that they see 
that his face is as the face of an angel. You know, his face shines with the glory of God. You know, really, this should have been all the evidence the Sanhedrin needed, it, shouldn't it? That should have settled the matter then and there. When his face was shining with the glory of God, that should have been enough to prove that he was innocent, to prove that he was God's man, that instead of accusing him, they should be listening to him. You know, you would have thought that seeing his face lit up with the glory of God would have been enough, that it would have softened their hearts. But instead, we find that chapter 7 begins with the high priest demanding that Stephen answer the accusations. He says, are these things so? And so in response now in chapter 7, Stephen gives his defense. And it's in the form of an address. And it's the longest address we have in the book of Acts. And it's an important one, especially in relation to the Jews. It's an important address that he gives. And in his defense here, what Stephen does is Stephen effectively reviews the history of Israel. He goes through Israel's history and he looks at the contributions that are made by their revered leaders along the way. He speaks about Abraham, Moses, jo- sorry, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. He mentions all of these men, these great leaders. You know, this address that he gives here is more than just a history lesson, okay? The Sanhedrin knows these things, okay? They're not... They're not ignorant of their history. They know their history. They're very proud of their history. So Stephen here is doing more than just reciting familiar facts. He's actually refuting the accusations that have been brought against him. And in doing so, he's using Israel's history to show that he's not the guilty one. Rather, Israel is the guilty one. And so as we consider Stephen's response this morning and again tonight... We're not going to try and cover all these verses this morning, so we're going to split it in two. As we consider Stephen's response this morning and tonight, we see this man speaking with great boldness, great wisdom, you know, that could only come from the Holy Spirit within. You know, Stephen answered with the Word of God, which is how we all must respond to opposition. You know, his response is directly from God's Word, using God's Word to answer these men accusing him. And that's how we have to respond even today. So let's consider Stephen's response. First of all, here we see that he reminds them of their origins, Israel's origins. Verse 1 down to verse 8, let's just quickly read it. I know Darren read it for us earlier, but let's just read it. Verse 1, it says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he dwelt in Charan, and said unto them, Get thee out of uh, under him, sorry, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I, sh- I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him. When as yet he had no child, and God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring, <clears throat> bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac, 
and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Excuse me. Stephen begins here by taking uh, the Sanhedrin, the audience. He takes them back to the beginning of the nation of Israel. He reminds them of their origins. And in particular here, he focuses on the fact that Abraham's relationship to God was one of grace and faith. Now, as you read that there, he highlights the aspects that are important, doesn't he? He highlights the fact that it's God's grace and Abraham's faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, not because he was circumcised, not because he kept the law, not because he worshipped in the temple. All those things didn't exist. Circumcision, the law, the temple all came afterward. None of those things were there. None of those things had anything to do with their father Abraham being saved. Had nothing to do with their spiritual origins. It was rather because he believed the promise of God and obeyed. It was his faith that saved him. Verse 2, Stephen begins by reminding them that God appeared to their father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. Just read verse 2 again. It says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Charan. Now, Mesopotamia here refers to the region between the two rivers, Euphrates and the Tigris, okay? Which, of course, is uh, what it says in the Old Testament, in Genesis 11, verse 31, it says that Abraham was in the Ur of the Chaldees, okay? And it re- we read down in verse 4 as well, it says, Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, okay? That's the region he's referring to. Even though he uses a different name here, that's the region Stephen's referring to. And the point here that Stephen's trying to make is that he's reminding them that God appeared to their father Abraham where? In the land of Israel? No. In a pagan land. He first appeared unto Abraham in a pagan land, in a pagan city, a pagan place. The God of glory, their God, the God they worshipped, or supposedly worshipped, had met Abraham not in the temple, not in the land of Canaan, but rather in a foreign land, a pagan land. You see, we must remember here the accusations that have been brought against Stephen. He was accused of what? Blaspheming against the temple. They accused him of teaching that Christ would destroy the temple. Just go with me to chapter 6. Uh, Verse 13, first of all, it says, And set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, referring to the temple and the law. Then verse 14, it says, We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And so they accused Stephen of teaching that Christ was going to destroy the temple, of blasphemy against the temple. Now, in reality, Stephen taught was that Christ was greater than the temple. Okay, we know that from what the, all the disciples taught, all the apostles taught. Okay, and that's what he was teaching: that Christ was greater than some earthly temple. That now that Christ had come, now that the Messiah had come, the need for the temple was no longer. Christ was greater than the temple. And so he was. He begins here in Acts chapter seven by showing them that the temple has nothing to do with their relationship with God. Okay, This was Israel's biggest problem, wasn't it? They believed because they had the temple, 
and the law and other things. That was what their relationship with God was based on. And Stephen here begins by showing them the temple has nothing to do with this. In a sense, their hearts are more important. You see, Abraham didn't have a temple to meet with God. And yet God met with him. God called him to come out in a pagan place. Stephen then goes on to recount how God gave Abraham instructions to leave his homeland and go to a land that he would show him. Verse 4, it says, Then he came out of the land. Now, sorry, we'll start in verse 3. Okay, it says, And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then verse 4, it says, Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. In verse 3, um, Stephen relates how God called Abraham. Okay, called him to leave that place and go to a land that he would show him. And then in verse 4, we see Abraham's response, don't we? Verse 4 starts out by saying, Then he came out of the Chaldeans. He came out of the land. Why? Because God called him. He obeyed by faith. Abraham exercised faith, obeyed the word of the Lord, and he left. He did as God instructed him. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, And he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. You see, it was Abraham's belief in God, his faith in God, his obedience to that that saved him. It's demonstrated by his obedience. It saved him. Faith is what mattered. Not the keeping of the law. As we said, Abraham didn't have the law. Not worshipping in the temple. There was no temple. Not circumcision. There was no no circumcision. No, it was his faith in God demonstrated by his obedience. And Stephen then goes on to relate how Abraham himself never inherited the land, but God promised his descendants would. Verse 5, it says, And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession. And do his seed after him when as yet he had no child. You know, we know the story. He had no children. Okay. But God came and promised him that his seed would indeed inherit the land. Even though Abraham himself was not going to actually possess the land, his descendants would. And God even told him, you know, basically what was going to happen after this. God told him how his descendants would go down into Egypt in bondage for 400 years. Verse 6. It says, And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring uh, them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. See, the point that Stephen's making here is every step of God's divine plan was carried out. Okay, God had planned this from the start. God called Abraham from in, in his grace and his love. He called Abraham out of the early Chaldees. God told him, God gave him this promise that his descendants would inherit the land. God said that before that, they'd go into Egypt in the bondage before they came out. God was in control. It was God's divine plan. The nation had come into existence and indeed come into the land because of God's sovereignty and because of God's grace. You see, God had ordered 
and supervised every step. Abraham's call, his stop at Haran, his father Terah's death, their bondage in Egypt, their eventual arriving Canaan, all of it was ordered by God. It was all according to his sovereign plan. Now, as I said earlier, you know, the Jews, they took great pride in their heritage. Great pride in saying we are the children of Abraham. Great pride in that. But their problem was that they confused physical descent with spiritual experience. They thought their relationship with God was dependent upon their national heritage, was dependent upon the fact that they were the children of Abraham because they had the temple, they had the law, they had circumcision. They thought their relationship with God was all based on this, not on personal faith. The Jews in Stephen's day, and indeed even today, were blind to the simple faith of Abraham and the patriarchs. They were blind to this truth. And that's what Stephen's pointing out to them here. It was all of God. It was all of God's grace, God's sovereignty, and Abraham placed faith in the Lord. You see, they focused instead on man-made traditions making salvation a matter of good works, not of faith. You know, in reality, this is the reason they rejected Christ and his followers, isn't it? Because it didn't line up with what they were teaching was the way of salvation. It didn't line up with their good works, their, their worship at the temple, their circumcision, the law, all these things. It didn't line up with what they wanted. You know, Christ and his followers made it clear that salvation was by grace through faith and faith alone. It was not by birthright, it was not by good works. It had nothing to do with the temple, nothing to do with circumcision. And so by starting at this point with Israel's origins, Stephen is already making it clear that God's way was always grace through faith. Now salvation was not some right the Jews possessed because they were Abraham's children. Not something dependent upon the temple of circumcision. Salvation has been and always will be by grace through faith. And that's what he's trying to point out here. It's of God's grace that the nation even exists because Abraham placed faith in him. Secondly, now he goes on to uh, speak about Israel's rejection of God's ordained deliverers. Israel's rejection of God's ordained deliverers. And this is verse 9. Right down to verse 36. We're not going to read all of it right now. We'll sort of read it as we go. You see, having begun his response with Israel's origins, he sort of set the scene. He's, he's taken them back to their origins, showing them their spiritual origins in Abraham, by grace, through faith. Now Stephen focuses on one particular aspect of their history. And that was their pattern of rejecting God's chosen deliverers. And Stephen focuses on two of them in particular, two of these deliverers, and he points out to the Sanhedrin that both of these men were rejected the first time, but then were accepted the second time. The first of these men is Joseph. Is Joseph. <clears throat> Let's just read from verse, uh, verse 9. It says, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And so the first delivery here that Stephen points out is Joseph. And he begins by pointing out in verse 9 that the patriarchs hated their brother. Yeah, the patriarchs, of course, here is referring to his brothers. 
okay, the 12 sons of Israel. Okay, they, they, his brethren hated him. They rejected him. You see, Joseph was at first rejected. He was despised. So much so that, as we know, they cast him out. Now, they hated him. And Stephen here points out the reason why they hated him was envy. It says in verse 9, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. They were moved with envy. That's what motivated them here. That was what motivated them to, to hate their brother so much. See, Joseph had never done anything wrong by his brothers, had he? He never done anything wrong by them and he never hurt them. He never threatened them. They hated him without a cause. Now, all that Joseph had done is tell them the visions that God had given him, the visions of how he was going to be their deliverer, how they were going to bow down to him one day. He was just telling them the visions God had given him. He'd done nothing wrong. They hated him without a cause. You know, Joseph really is a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? Hated without a cause. And that's what Stephen is getting to here. That's his point throughout this whole address here. His point is that like they, re they rejected Joseph, and indeed the second one we'll see in a minute, as they rejected Joseph, they've now rejected Christ. Just as they hated Joseph without a cause, so too the nation had hated Christ without a cause. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they were moved, moved with envy and they sold him into slavery. You know, we're told at the end of verse 9 there, it says, but God was with him. That God was with him. Now, this is a very important point that Stephen's making, isn't it? You see, the brothers moved with envy, hated Joseph, despised Joseph, and sold him into slavery, but God was with him. You see, although they rejected him, Joseph was not rejected by God. Joseph was God's appointed deliverer. He was God's man. Even though they failed to see it, even though they thought he was just a young, foolish brother and they hated him, that he was getting special treatment and everything else, even though they failed to see it, he was God's man. He was God's deliverer. God's chosen servant, and God was with him even when his brothers hated him, despised him, and rejected him. Verse 10, Stephen then goes on to recount how God was with Joseph every step of the way. It says, And delivered him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now we know the story. He ends up down in Egypt. He gets into Potiphar's house. He gets falsely accused. He ends up in jail. He gets forgotten about in jail and finally ends up before Pharaoh. And he ends up being raised to this position of second in command. God was with Joseph every step of the way, this rejected one. God protected him. God delivered him through all these afflictions, all these trials, and brought him to the place that he wanted him to be, second in command. You know, once he got to being second in command, God sent the famine, didn't he? The famine upon the land of Egypt and upon the land of Canaan. Verse 11, it says, Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and, and, a great, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent our fathers 
first. You know, it is this famine which causes Jacob now to send Joseph's brothers down to Egypt to buy corn because there's corn there. Why? Because Joseph is God's appointed deliverer. And he's made sure that there's plenty of corn, there's plenty of food to go around. So they go down to buy corn from Joseph, who is second in command. Now, it's upon their second trip down to Egypt that Joseph makes himself known unto his brothers. Verse 13, it says, And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred (coughs) was made known unto Pharaoh. It's at the second time that Joseph is accepted. When they come back down to Egypt the second time, Joseph then presents himself to his brothers and they accept him. They weep. They are repentant of what they did. And they accept him. It's only after this that Jacob and his family then move to Egypt, which is where God said they were going to go. Verse 14, it says, Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. And so Jacob now moves down to Egypt where God wanted him to be. Jacob and, the, and his family is saved by Joseph, God's deliverer. See, Joseph, this one who had been rejected, this one who had been sold into slavery, was God's appointed deliverer. It didn't matter what man thought. It didn't matter what his brothers thought. He was God's man. This one who was rejected, this one who was cast out, despised, is raised by God to an exalted position. And he delivers God's people. And indeed, he delivers the Egyptians as well. Not just God's people, he delivers the Egyptians from the famine. You see, he was rejected at first, the first appearing, by his brothers. But then when they came before him that second time and bowed down, they acknowledged his authority. They accepted him. You know, we all know the story of Joseph well, just like the Sanhedrin knew the story well. But Stephen's point here is clear, isn't it? That just as they had rejected Joseph, mistreated Joseph, they had now rejected and mistreated the Messiah. That's what he's trying to say. He's saying, you've done this before. Look at Joseph. And now Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come and you've done the same thing again. History had repeated itself. You know, Joseph suffered, but in his suffering and rejection, he provided life for his people, provided life for Egypt as well. You know, the same is true of Christ, isn't it? Christ was rejected. Christ suffered. Why? So that he might provide salvation for all. But Israel refused to to receive him. You know, when he comes that second time, they will receive him. Just like they received Joseph at the second time, they will receive Christ at the second time when he comes again. They will bow the knee. They will acknowledge his authority. The second person that Stephen now looks at is Moses. Verse 17 and onwards, he speaks about this second deliverer. You know, and as he had with Joseph, Stephen continues the narrative of the history. 
paying particular attention to the point that he wants to drive home here concerning Moses. You see, Israel, in his point in history here, Israel, of course, now is in Egypt, where they could grow into a nation until God's appointed time came for them to leave and to go and possess the land of Canaan. That's verse 17. It says, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now, this is all part of God's plan. He'd said it to Abraham. It's been fulfilled now. God has his people in Egypt. Why? So they can grow into a nation until his appointed time. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, at God's appointed time, God then allowed a king to rise up who didn't know Joseph. A king to rise up and to persecute the people. Why? To unsettle them. So that they would leave the land of Egypt and go to Canaan. You know, this king, for fear of the Jews, of course, put them into slavery. And he even sought to reduce the number of men by putting the male children to death. Verse 18, it says, Till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. Then the same dealt suddenly uh, with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children. To the end, they might not live. Okay, we know the story. You know, Israel ends up in slavery, ends up in bondage for fear. You know, the, the Egyptians fear the size of the nation. And they even get to the point where they're killing the male children. And it's, of course, during this time of great hardship and affliction that Moses is born. And he's hidden by his parents and he's found and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And this meant, of course, that Moses is raised in the palace. He's given an Egyptian education. He's given wisdom, great instruction. Verse 20, Stephen recounts, it says in verse 20, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. You know, in spite of all this training, in spite of this life in the palace, Moses still loved his people. You know, Moses could have forgotten his people, couldn't he? But Moses still loved and cared about his people. He longed to see them freed from this state of bondage. And at the age of 40, Moses felt it was God's call on his life to deliver his people. And he thought they would, you know, follow him. He thought they would, you know, accept him. Verse 23, it says, And when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffered, suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. You know, Moses... You know, he saw one of his brethren being persecuted, being mistreated, and so he rises up, it says, in defense of this man. Now, he committed murder. We know what he did. He killed the Egyptian. You know, Moses thought that by doing this, he thought that they would accept him. It says that at the start of verse 25, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how God, sorry, how that God by his hand would deliver them. He thought they would accept him. He thought they would follow him. But in reality, what did they do? 
they rejected him. The end of verse 25 there it says, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again. Saint Serge, ye are brethren, why do you wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and judge of us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses, uh, then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Now instead of following him and thanking him as Moses thought, they rejected him. Instead of understanding, as Moses thought at the start of verse 25, that they would see him as God's deliverer, understanding that God would use him to deliver them, they rejected him. And so Moses flees into the wilderness, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. Now, there's no doubt here that Moses acted at the wrong time. Okay, we understand that. Moses acted ahead of God's timetable when he tried to deliver God's people in his own strength. But Stephen's point is still clear. At the first appearance, Moses was rejected. He was despised. I mean, they said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? They hated him. They said, get away. We don't want you. We want nothing to do with you. Now, verse 25, it says, they understood not. They didn't understand that he was God's deliverer. They didn't understand that he was God's man, and they rejected him. You know, during those 40 years that Moses spends in the wilderness, what's happening to God's people? They continue to endure suffering. They continue to endure hardship in Egypt. Why? Because they rejected God's appointed deliverer. Now, I know it was ahead of God's time, so we know that. But they rejected God's appointed deliverer, and they spent another 40 years in Egypt suffering. Now, when that 40 years was up, God sent Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people from bondage. Verse 30, it says, And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that he showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. You know, verse 35, I think, sums it up well. Read verse 35, it says, This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. The same Moses that they refused, the same Moses that they rejected the first time, was God's appointed deliverer. And at the second coming, they, they accepted him, they followed him. Once again, Israel failed to accept God's appointed deliverer the first time. 
Now, Stephen used both of these events here to illustrate how Israel is now doing the same thing with the Messiah. In verse 37, Stephen points out to the Sanhedrin that Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him. Verse 37, it says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. He reminds the Sanhedrin, he said, Moses prophesied that there was another prophet coming like unto him. And Moses told us to hear that prophet. That prophet, of course, was none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But instead of hearing him like Moses had told them, they rejected and crucified their Messiah. They rejected and crucified their deliverer, the one God had sent to them. Just like they had with Joseph and they had with Moses, Christ had come and they rejected him. In John 1 verse 11, it says, He came unto his own and his own received him not. They refused him. Now, history repeated itself yet again. Israel as a nation hadn't learned from past mistakes. And only when Christ comes back the second time will they finally acknowledge him and accept him and receive him. Go to Zechariah 12, just quickly. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. I'm almost done this morning. Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah 12 and verse 10, it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There is a day coming when they will look upon the one that they pierce, and they will accept the Lord Jesus Christ. At his second coming, history will be repeated yet again. Israel will accept God's deliverer the second time. You know, in spite of all that God has done, he has not cast away his people. We need to remember that. In spite of all that Israel has done, God has not cast away his people. Paul speaks about that extensively in the book of Romans, doesn't he? He sort of takes what Stephen talks about and elaborates upon it greatly. There is a day coming when they will accept their Messiah at his second coming. You know, Stephen here still has a lot more to say in his response, and that's why we're going to leave it till this evening because we'd be here for at least another half an hour. He still has a lot more to say in his response to the Sanhedrin. And so this, so this evening we'll consider those verses. This morning, you know, we've seen a man of God using the Word of God to answer those who are opposed to God. And that really is the key here, isn't it? We see a man of God using the word of God to answer those opposed to God. Now, Stephen, in his response here to their accusations, showed them that they were, in fact, the ones guilty. He showed them their sin. He made it plain that they were guilty before Almighty God. They had forgotten their spiritual origins. They had forgotten that Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Not through the temple, not through circumcision, not through the law. And we're going to look at those more this evening. It wasn't through any of that. They'd forgotten their spiritual origins. And they'd also failed to learn from past mistakes. 
Israel had a history of rejecting God's appointed men, God's appointed deliverers, and they'd done it yet again with the Messiah. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we read this, it says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the thing about this week, you know, Stephen truly was ready, wasn't he? Stephen was ready. He was ready and he was empowered by the Spirit in his answer. There's great wisdom in his answer here, great wisdom in the way he structures it, the way he responds to the Sanhedrin. You know, only by God's grace can we likewise be ready. Be ready to answer with the Word when we are questioned and opposed by men. And, you know, if we're going to do that, we need to be in the Word, don't we? We need to know the Word. You can't hope to answer with the Word if you don't know the Word. We must know the Word and be walking in the right relationship with the Lord, be walking in the Spirit. You know, Stephen was a man filled with the Spirit. That's one of the key things about this man, Stephen, isn't it? Back in chapter 6, when, when they were choosing these men, what did they look for? Someone filled with the Spirit. And Stephen, it gets special mention. Because Stephen was a man full of the Holy Ghost, controlled by the Spirit. So if we're going to be like him, ready always to answer every man, then we need to be in the Word and be controlled by the Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Word. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, this passage here where we have Stephen, Lord, giving this great address before the Sanhedrin. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can see a man of God using your word to answer those opposed to you. And Lord, you gave him great wisdom in this address. And Lord, I pray that you would help us likewise, Lord, to be in your words, that we might know your word, be walking in the spirit, controlled by the spirit, so that, Lord, we likewise might be able to answer with the word those who stand against you and your word, we pray. Well, may we remember these truths, may we leave this place rejoicing in you, rejoicing in the great truths in this passage, Lord, your grace and your, your sovereignty and your love and the fact that salvation has always been by grace through faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.